This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction and infrastructure projects nationwide. Welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average. On the show this week, we have Rosa. We're very lucky to have Rosa here today, and I'm going to hand over to Rosa just to do a little introduction and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you. I'm Rosa Antonia Carrillo, and I like to use my middle name because I see myself as an author primarily. And, you know, authors always use their middle name on their books. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that, but I'll need to start using mine. (laughs) Yes, so um, I have a consulting practice in Southern California. I'm about 35 miles south of Los Angeles in a little town called Long Beach. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I've been living, basically I grew up uh, in California starting at about age 10. And before that, I was in Mexico living uh, as a child and going to school there. So I'm very bicultural, both in uh, Mexico and and the United States. Mm -hmm. So I have a consulting practice and I've been in safety from about uh, 1989. So I've been Mm -hmm. in it for a very long time and I've seen a lot of changes and uh, just different approaches that we've taken. And now I'm more of a mentor and a teacher, which is a nice thing as you get older in your career. Um, I don't enjoy the travel anymore. And of course, with COVID, you can't travel. So I've really enjoyed the virtual, (laughs) meeting people virtually from all over the world. It's been so amazing and wonderful. So here I am, and I'm a published author, as you said. I have been, though, writing since, or publishing since 1995, and I've always had the reputation of really being people-focused, because safety is a people business, but almost all of the publications back then were more technically oriented, so that's what I'm known for. Uh, How do you work with people in order to get better safety performance? Excellent, excellent. Thank you, Rosa. So if we go back to your early life, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing, where you grew up, and your early life? Yes, yes, because I think my upbringing had a lot to do with my career. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. having been, I was born in the U.S., but then I went to live with my grandmother in Mexico, and I found out that you couldn't talk about the fact that you were an American because at that time, uh, Mexicans were very angry with Americans and you would be ostracized. So because I looked the way I look, I didn't have a hard time passing for Mexican. (laughs) So when I moved to the States, however, um, that was a different kind of discrimination, which is that I didn't speak English, I had an accent um, and I was pretty much ostracized. throughout throughout school. So I was forced to be very adaptive in order to get what I wanted. Uh, And in fact, I would say I pretty much lost my identity because I went to an all white school and high school and I lived in an all white town. So it was uh, very difficult to put the two together uh, that 
how I had to behave in the United States versus how I really felt inside. And the reason I mention that is because there's so much talk now about uh, psychological safety. And one mm -hmm. of the elements of psychological safety is to feel like you can be yourself, that you don't have to wear a mask, that you don't have to worry about um, being ostracized or not accepted. So I, I pretty much grew up in complete lack of psychological safety. Uh, then mm -hmm. went to university and that was a, a very good experience because all of a sudden the world opened up to a lot of different ethnic groups and the presence of beginning the, the discovery of my, my true identity. Mm -hmm. That has influenced my work in that uh, I've always, even before I had the words to describe it, I've always known that some people had to adjust a lot more than others. So being a woman of color, you don't, I didn't even notice that I was being um, accommodating of uh, white men and uh, you know, white women in power. Uh, it took, uh, when I went to get my master's degree in organizational development, where some of these issues began to emerge uh, mm -hmm. about cultural diversity, uh, discrim racial discrimination. And it's funny because you'd think that being discriminated against, being a person of color, having participated in uh, you know, the civil rights marches with Martin Luther King, that I would have been more aware, but, mm -hmm. but I wasn't. I just wasn't aware of the whole social structure that was keeping everything in place. Uh, and it has a lot to do uh, with what happens in organizations and the reason why we don't uh, get the kinds of results that we're expecting. And of course, it's true for everything that goes on in the organization. The successful organizations, as we know now, are, are you know, have psychological safety, they have diversity, they have integration. Uh, and uh, we know that now, but back then it was just kind of focused on let's weed out the weak ones, right? And, and keep all the mm -hmm. strong ones. And now what we're finding out is, no, we need everybody, but how do we do that? You know, if you're mm -hmm. a white manager or a manager trained, you might not, you don't even have to be white, but if you're a manager trained in the traditional hierarchical manner, you don't mm -hmm. know how to. Uh, get the engagement uh, and the employee buy-in that you need in order to have a high-performance organization. So that is basically what my book is about. It's an instruction manual on how to make get relationships, to engage employees, and really unleash their full potential so that you get high performance. Yeah. So building high-performance teams, that's, that's fascinating, Rosa. So if we continue on a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about your first job? You mentioned that you went to university after you left education. What was your first job? My first job was a kindergarten teacher. Okay. Yes. And uh, there's a famous book, Everything You Need to Learn, You Learned in Kindergarten. And that's double true for adults. <laughs> <laughs> you go in, you have all this education about now you're a teacher, now you're going to go out and teach. And you find out that you can't because you don't know how to control the children. You don't know how to get their buy-in, right, to go along with what you're trying to do. 
And so your first year is pretty much spent pulling your hair out and getting a lot of uh, br bruises with children who are kicking your knees because they don't want to do what you want them to do. So um, I had to go to uh, my elders and my mentors and what, what, what am I going to do? And, and, and I began to learn, uh, you know, how to work with the children, how to um, work with them instead of trying to control them or against them. So the, uh, and I love, I love teaching. I just, I just love uh, working with children because they, they show their emotions. So when they get a problem, right, they start screaming, I got it, I got it. You know? Whereas as adults, we're trained to be very, you know, very quiet and keep it to ourselves. Yeah, so yeah that I, often, I often do that with my daughter, but I, I tell her to be quiet when she's shrieking around the house when she's really excited. And then I, I take a step back and I realise, well, no, actually, don't change. Why should you? You know, and uh, let, her, let her express her emotions and be able to be out there and, yes, and have well, big emotions. Yeah, because uh, what we're learning now, I mean, because uh, it's true, if you ask a group of kindergartners, how many people here can dance? Everyone is going to raise their hand. How many people can paint? Everyone is going to, how many people can sing? Oh yeah, me, I can sing. But if you try that in sixth grade, you're lucky to get two or three hands up because we've been socialized to think, oh, if I'm not as good as the person on television, then, you know, I yeah. can't do it. And that that's really a shame that uh, we we really socialize children not to be creative. Of course, now now mm -hmm. it's different. That was those were the old days, and I think there's a lot of uh, great educators now that are fighting to make that really different. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, kindergarten. How did you move into health and safety from there, then, Rosa? Well. Uh, first, I'm the kind of person that I like a lot of variety. So teaching, and I love to teach, but when you're teaching uh, in the grade schools, you really pretty much have to do this, you know, the same things in a very disciplined way. And um, so after five years, I decided that I wanted to, also I wanted to make more money. I decided to go into learning about business. And I started working uh, with a company in the mortgage area. And then from there, I was introduced to um, a group that was working on alcohol and drug rehabilitation. And they had this idea of forming a community that would be self-sustaining uh, where they would earn the money to not need government grants because the government was very restrictive about what approaches. And this, this group wanted to take a, a very um, unusual approach in that the drug addicts would be helping each other rather than bringing in doctors and therapists and all that sort of thing. And basically it was tell, tell your story. So if I, if I were clean for five days and you were brand new, I would tell you, know, tell you how uh, I do it, and then you would feel encouraged to to do it in the same way. It's it's a it's an amazing process that was that was discovered um, by uh, really it started in AA because people would tell their story there, and then this gentleman uh, Charles Dieter decided, well, I'm going to try it with drug addicts, and and that's how it began because before that all drug addicts either went to prison or state mental hospitals. That was the only uh, 
choice. And, and so being able to join a therapeutic community was far preferable. So I became involved in that and I was one of the fundraisers. And so one of the areas that we got into for fundraising was safety incentives, very lucrative mm -hmm. in the eighties. Everybody, I mean, they got to the point where they were giving away trucks uh, if, if the groups met, met zero injuries, zero missed day work days. And, um, and one day I was working with an Exxon group and, and the guy said to me, this isn't working because last year, the guy who won the truck is the most unsafe person on the site, but he never yeah. reported an accident. Yeah. And I started thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> this, you know, this makes sense to me, but um, you know, we were just so ingrained in, in the rewards and the behavioral safety. So I said, okay, mm -hmm. I'm gonna go back to school. I went to um, get my degree in organizational development. And that's where mm -hmm. I learned about the systems. You know, if you reward yep. people for not having a recordable, what you're actually doing is rewarding them for not reporting a recordable. Now, keep in mind, early 80s, okay? So it was all uphill from there. Uh, the whole cultural, we got into uh, safety culture. Uh, Ed Shine, whom you may have heard of, was yep. um, my mentor. He uh, in writing my master's thesis, which I wrote on safety cultures, and, and that was published in 1993. So it was at the very, very beginning of things and very, shall we say, um, a beginner's look at, a beginner's look at culture, but still, you know, trying to uh, educate the safety community on the systems approach and having to look at safety in that way rather than just a cause and effect and, and let's uh, look at the injury rate and say that we did well. Well, it's taken, so that was uh, 90, 93. Uh, and even today, it's still a battle because so many of the companies are still focused on you know, the zero injuries. Uh, and I mean, there's nothing basically wrong with saying that you want to achieve zero injuries. I think that's a great vision. Yep. However, mm -hmm. to expect it, I, I think is unachievable. Uh, yep. And they're not all the same. I mean, if you, if you cut your finger or, you know, you have, even if you have like, you know, uh, break your arm and so you have to miss work for a couple of days, it's not the same as a fatality or losing a limb or, uh, you know, it, it, they're just not the same. And yet we do this ridiculous thing where fatalities aren't counted, you know, they're not OSHA recordables. So, it, it just didn't make any sense. Uh, and so we're, I would say uh, safety to me feels more like a social movement because yeah. of people who are involved in it. They, they really care about people. They really care yeah. about the, the whole person and the well-being, uh, justice, uh, you know, Decker, Sydney Decker talking about just culture. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Todd Conklin uh, talking about how, um, you know, there is the employee is the answer, employee is not the problem. Well, those are all social issues. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, 
you'll get a better safety record. So, so safety is an outcome of treating uh, the person as a whole person and caring for their well-being. Yeah, definitely. And I still see that in organizations. It's quite interesting you spoke about the rewards for zero accidents. Even now, organizations out there will have a safety element based on their performance-related pay for certain staff at a certain level i.e. in a project-driven organisation, the project manager, an element of his pay progression and bonus could be structured around safety performance. Yes. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, so it's fun. fascinating that we're now, so much time has passed since the 80s until now, we're in 2021, and that's still a, a recurring issue across organisations. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. I attribute it to looking for an easy answer. Mm -hmm. what, what gets measured gets done, what gets rewarded is reinforced. And so that's all from our early days of behaviorism, which has changed a great deal, but we've, we've hung on to the old ideas because they're so easy, right? Mm -hmm. Push a lever, get a, you get some food, so you push the ledger <laughs> lever next time. It was very recently, like maybe two years ago, I was with a senior, uh, with a global EHS group, and they were complaining because the board had said that they have to measure hand injuries and that was, and their pay bonus was going to be based on reducing mm -hmm. hand injuries. Well, that's the epitome of foolishness mm -hmm. because hand injuries, what does that have to do with the whole system mm -hmm. and not getting someone killed? Yeah. Yeah. But so it is very much still alive mm -hmm. and the board members are how educated are they how much do they know about what really goes into uh, safe performance probably mm -hmm. very little so why are they making those kinds of decisions yeah yeah i understand that that's a really interesting theory on it as well um how much of your executive directorship have a, a really good understanding of safety management and the principles that go behind it. Yeah, excellent. I mean, even if you're an officer of the corporation, the CEO, um, mm -hmm. there's certain things that you just are not qualified mm -hmm. to make a final decision on, right? And so mm -hmm. on till uh, that's why we're always saying that the person on the ground is, is uh, has the real information. They may not understand, you know, the big picture, but they know what's happening on the ground, which brings us to my other favorite topic. Why do managers spend so much time in the office and meetings and so little time talking to employees? Yeah. Do you know the answer to that? Well, the difference between a great leader and a great manager as someone that's able to engage at all levels of the organisation and the best business leaders I've worked with have been able to go to a meeting and hold their own at the meeting and speak the corporate language and be understood and put the message across that they want to do. But they can then go out to site and work with the people. And there's one that springs out to me that I've worked with across my career that was excellent at this, a guy called Richard Cooper that I worked with at Siemens, that was a delivery director at Siemens when I first started. He was one of the most professional managers that or leaders that I've ever worked with. He was able to speak eloquently and deliver the message that he wanted to in 
the kind of board level meetings, but he could go out and speak with the front line guys, talk to them about their likes and dislikes, their hobbies, his hobbies, running over mountains and all of the great stuff that he'd done with spare time and really have that personable skill to be able to engage the front line people. And he le always left them feeling good. And I always used to think to myself when I worked with him, I want to be like you. I want to be a leader like you because he was so good at leaving them with a good feeling when he walked away from them. That's wonderful. Ah, to meet people like that, it's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's, that's my um, mission really is to, and, and if you, when you read my book, it's got so many stories about how simple, the simple actions that impact people's lives and cause them to think this is a good leader. Mm -hmm. I, I, one of them is, of course, going out and having conversations, really mm -hmm. listening. People really value someone who's present, someone yep. who looks them in the eye. Uh, and if, if they have a discussion about an idea or something that needs to be done, getting back to them. That is yeah. a, a, one of the highest signs of respect and inclusion. Another very simple one, uh, which uh, one of the general managers at Rio Tinto who raised the site from like last to the top, he said, well, when I came, I told, we had such low morale because there'd been a lot of layoffs. I told my guys, his, his direct reports, every time you pass an employee, look them at the eye and say, good morning and learn their name so that you can call them by their name. I'll be darned if in the interviews that didn't come up as often, very often, on something that created a new, a new culture at the plant. So we're talking about changing our mind from we're at work, we're at the office, so we have to treat each other you know, with distance uh, or look at people at more like assets and their you know, pieces of equipment to looking at people as this is someone with feelings, emotions. Hey, this is someone that's a lot like me. What would I like to be treated? How would I like to be treated? When was the last time somebody said thank you to me? Yeah. 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 So you want to be sorry, Rosa, you broke up there a little bit. Um with a oh, yeah, because I saw that you froze as well. You were frozen. <laughs> Can we just take a wee 10 second pause and we'll go back to the start of that that chain because that was really, really good that was coming through there. Okay. I'm not sure where you froze, but I'll start with my story. How's that? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. One of the examples of how simple it is to make connection with employees is I met uh, Joe Rea, general manager for one of the Rio Tinto mines, his site was decimated because they had so many layoffs and morale was extremely low. So he came in and he told his direct reports every time 
you pass an employee, look them at the eye and say good morning or hello and use their name. In the interviews, that came out as one of the most significant changes mm -hmm. was that had contributed to the culture change. They had become one of the highest performing minds. Mm -hmm. And everybody loved Joe. <laughs> and how often do you, uh, do you hear that with, with an operational leader? They knew him personally. They felt like they knew him personally. He carried around a list in his pocket every day of whose birthday it was that day. And he didn't go everywhere looking for them, but if he saw them happen yeah. to be passing or in a meeting, hey, happy birthday. And they're going like, how did he know that? <laughs> you know, right away, you, you like perk up. Yeah. What, uh, here's a good one. What do you think, I do workshops all the time with lots and lots of middle managers and mm -hmm. uh, you know that report directly to the plant manager. What do they say when I ask them most frequently answer when I say, what would you like your manager to tell you in one or two words? What would you most want to hear from your manager? You're what doing a good job. You're doing good a good job. job. Or yeah. thank you. Mm -hmm. Always. You got it. You're probably a good leader too, Blair. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I haven't had the opportunity to uh, work with you, but if you know that, that is the secret of um, success because you're treating people like human beings. Yeah. yeah. That's what it is. They have feelings, they have emotions, just like we, you know, everyone does. Yeah. And if you're respectful of that and work with people at that level, which means saying good morning, thank you. Hey, how are you? Yeah. How's your family doing? Yeah. Having a little bit of understanding about their background and the situation that they find themselves in as well. Um, mm -hmm. My time in the rail industry, I always reflect back on I knew if I didn't, I knew all of the operational people that were working on any of my projects. I knew a little bit about their background. I maybe knew if they were doing their driving test because they'd been banned or they played football or they'd done a unique sport. I would have something to talk to each person about and it would be different for each one. And that started to build the relationship of trust that they would maybe come and say, yeah, maybe I'll work with you. We think this isn't quite right, but we don't want to make a big fuss about it. That's fine, let's look at it and we'll fix it. And that builds the trust and builds the trust until you get to that utopia where they're coming to you before things become an issue and saying, we need to fix this. And you say, yeah, that's great. Thank you for the recognizing that let's go and fix it actually yeah um you don't have to be defensive you can say mm -hmm. yeah okay there's a problem we're just going to go fix it mm -hmm. and that comes to safety professionals as well because so many feel they're never thanked for anything it'd be nice thank mm -hmm. we could have a day thank your safety professional day what how's that mm -hmm. for an idea yeah um, but they uh as a safety professional and this is what i, I tell them in my classes uh is that you have to manage upwards as well as sideways and down. So yeah, you might be pretty good with your employees and know them all, mm -hmm. but your the managers are people too, and you have to get to know them. You have to chat with them uh, and realize that we're 
the human need for belonging, the human need for recognition, and for the opportunity to be helpful, to be seen as valued or knowledgeable is tremendous. So any time that you recognize that in someone and expressly mm -hmm. talk about it, you're establishing that trust and yeah. credibility with them. So don't go trying to tell a manager anything or ask him for anything before you have a relationship with him or her. Yeah. And building relationships is key to getting anything you want done in industry. If you don't have that relationship there, there's no foundation as a building block to build that up on. That's excellent, Rosa. Thanks for sharing that with us. If we continue on then, can you take us a little bit through your career journey? You said that you like to have a bit of variation in your career. What was the next move then? So you got into safety, you done a bit of retraining, you done a bit of business development training. Where did you go from there? In the future, I'm going to be a, pretty much a full-time author and teacher. Okay. Uh, for example, I'm working with The Art of Work. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're out of Australia, mm -hmm. Kelvin. Jen. Uh, we did a series of master classes on the relationship factor and safety performance where I'm working with safety professionals mm -hmm. to help them develop a relationship strategy and learn the techniques so that they can develop the mm -hmm. relationships they need in order to get that engagement. Uh, and so much of that works even if you don't have your management support because you're doing it on your own and you're developing that group cohesiveness. It works a lot better with management support, don't get me wrong, you know, um, but you're not helpless as a safety professional. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, have, you can have a lot of personal power, I call it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Definitely. so teaching and then of course writing, writing. Mm -hmm. I wanna write another book. The, you know, this is my first book and it took me a long time to write it, like 25 years. So I think the next one has to take less time. Uh, I was asking Sidney Decker, because he writes one a year. What's his yeah. secret? I think he sits in a darkened room for 12 hours a day typing. <laughs> well, he used to do it on the airplane because he was always on the airplane. But yeah. now I, he probably is in a darkened room. I'll have to ask him again. <laughs> Brilliant. So what's been your biggest challenge in health and safety across your career then, Rosa? Yes, my, my biggest challenge is delivering information to managers um, and, and while, uh, let me put it this way, without raising resistance, without raising uh, a fear of threat. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was younger, I didn't, we didn't have, you know, that notion of psychological safety. And then of course, even if we did, we would have expected management to suck it up, mm -hmm. right? Here's yeah. some bad news, suck it up. Mm -hmm. uh, no, you know, managers are human beings. So learning how to uh, engage management uh, in the process and how to take uh, constructive information and work with it, that, that has been a big challenge for me. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that it's really easy now because mm -hmm. when it is easy, the person is already converted. Yeah. 
to the notion that people are the answer, they're not the problem. And in fact, in my book, I have uh, what I call the eight beliefs of safety leadership. Mm -hmm. And the very, uh, you know, the first one is that there is no trust without, I mean, there is no communication without trust. Mm -hmm. If you haven't gained someone's trust, they're, they're not really listening to you. Yeah. That's just point blank. And mm -hmm. so the other one is that every employee, everyone in the organization, that would include managers, is willing and able to contribute to the success of the enterprise. And that, that came all the way from theory X and zero, theory Y from McGregor, mm -hmm. where he talked about, uh, yeah, what do you believe about human nature? Yep. So that, that's where I'm foc focusing now. How, how do you help people make that transition from employees need to be controlled, they, they need to be told what to do, uh, they need to be supervised. Um, and, and now we're doing it electronically with video, yeah. with those, um, what do you call the, the, the Zoom things that come out into the field to, uh, to watch employees, their video, they fly. Oh, the, dro the drones. drones. Yeah. Thank you. Can you imagine, you know, so the drones are gonna go around making sure that you're wearing your safety equipment and that. Yeah. So I, I always say, uh, good luck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> good luck with that. It's well intended. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I very but, much a big brother's watching type of scenario when that starts to happen. Yeah. I know a lot of a lot of projects in the UK have started to now look at installing CCTV absolutely everywhere across the project space so that the workers are fully supervised instead of investing the money and programs to build relationships and take the the kind of ethos of the project and the culture of the project along in the journey. I had um, Martin Wiltshire on um, just a couple of, couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and he spoke about being able to facilitate a good environment. And they work for a company called Multiplex, who are quite big in America. And they brought a couple of the Multiplex safety team from America over to look at his Bishopsgate project. And on the site, the welfare facilities were so good that it had a barber's shop and they had taken on a barber and an apprentice barber to be able to give everyone on the project a haircut on the site while they were building this big skyscraper. And then a couple of years later, they went out to New York to look at the project and they had adopted this methodology that they were creating different types of jobs. One of the projects I worked with them in Scotland, which was a big um, hospital build around seven or eight years ago, it was the first project that I ever seen that the relationship was absolutely immense between the trade unions and the management team in the project because the business had given a large training budget to the trade unions and kind of repurposed them from being a union convener to someone that was able to facilitate and arrange training for their employees or their union members. So we were seeing people going, maybe starting on the project as a labourer and leaving with three or four different qualifications. I thought that was an excellent model. It was taking that social development model and adding it in to a construction project, which absolutely fascinated me at the time. 
That's amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how the company, that, that's well spent money because you are going to get that performance that, that you're looking for. Well, that's, that was the output. That was the output. The culture on the projects that I worked with them were night and day to some of the other projects that I was working on with different clients at the time. Fascinating stuff. It was almost as if safety was a byproduct of them treating the workers well. I think it is. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. No, actually, we should tell everyone. No, I just have seen it so many times where you go to a facility and, you know, of course, they never invite me if things are going great. So generally, things, they're having a lot of problems. And yet you, I find uh, supervisors whose teams are working great, getting along, collaborating, yeah. doing great work. And it's all about that team leader. Yeah. It's all about that team leader. So yeah, you're not, you're not helpless. You, and I don't know how many times I can get this out there that uh, maybe you have to stay in a job that is not the best place in the world and you don't have the support that you need. But if you have to be there because you need the money, you need to support your family, you don't have to suffer as well. Mm -hmm. You can change the environment around you. And you, that happens when you change yourself. Yep. Because think about it, if the leader is saying hello, respecting people, valuing people, including people, he hasn't asked other people to change. Yep. That's the way he behaves. And how do you behave in that way? Is by working on yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that probably brings me nicely onto something that we spoke about off camera. And it's one of the issues that I see in the UK with a lot of big companies that the directors and the leaders of the organisation want people to work safely for two reasons. One, they care about their people and they care about their business reputation. They don't want to be the company that injures people or hurts people or stops them from going home. And two, it's good business for them. It avoids fines. It means that their bosses are happy with the performance and ultimately their executive board are happy with the performance because they're performing well with regards to safety. Then you get your front end worker, your man with the shovel, the man with the pick, working out on site, carrying out the actual work. He wants to work safely, but he has a different approach to it from the leader of the organisation. And his approach will be that he wants to work safely because it's good business for him or her. They won't be fired from the job or injured themselves or go home with an injury while they're carrying out the work. And potentially, they might also be rewarded for a job well done. So that's great. The leader of the organisation's up here. He has, we work safely here. The front-end people, they want to work safely to make sure that they get continuation of the work and continue on with the role but we still have accidents and incidents and one of the theories that I've been thinking about recently is we've got a layer in there that's the frozen middle they are the conduit between the the top leaders of the organization and the people at the front line and they'll maybe cherry pick some of the information that we're told to pass on to the front line and there's also a bit of disassociation between the top leadership and the frozen layer in the middle that they have 
all of this theory spoken to them from the senior leadership team saying we want to work safely around here but we want you to deliver the job and we need it in this time scale so they have all of the pressure there to manage the front line and they've got safety they've got delivery and they've got all of the other factors that factor into the the pressures of the job so how do we support them better how do we support the middle leadership team better to be able to break down that disconnect between the top management and the front line that's that's a very good question if we think about it using the system thinking model mm -hmm. everybody's behavior is a result of the system mm -hmm. so if the middle is frozen it's because the people above them have put them in the freezer yeah <laughs> Good analogy. You like that? Yeah. Yep. Well, and how do you how do you put people in the freezer? One is lack of psychological safety because mm -hmm. uh, you know I know that I myself, it, you know, especially before I learned how to deal with all of these things like. Uh, uh, demands from superiors who have power over me that I know I should not fulfill, but somehow I still end up fulfilling them, right? Uh, and I call myself, you know, the, the deer staring in the headlighter uh, when there's a car approaching, the deer just can't move because uh, it's so frightening. Yeah. Uh, now it, you know, most people won't admit that because, oh no, I'm immune to that. I, I don't need psychological safety. I, I'm my own person. And if somebody asks me to do something against my values, I won't do it. But that is not what science tells us about human nature. We, we, our survival instinct is, is to belong mm -hmm. and to stay, to do what power asks us to do because instinctively we know that we will be ostracized, lose our jobs, etc, etc. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. that the people at the very top don't, they don't understand their power. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're going around saying, you know, I'm going to do this on purpose. Uh, and of course, if we can just, th there's just so many levels to this. One, one is that most of the people in power are still men. And a lot of them are white. And this whole thing about the hierarchy, social hierarchy, is that white men have the most power. Then come men of color, then come white women. And then at the very bottom, you have your women of color. And I, I don't even know where all the other groups go in, the, you know, the gay and the, I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot um, of research going on to look at what that soil, uh, that social hierarchy looks like. But the, but the big problem is if you don't understand your power, then you're unaware. Mm -hmm. And you're relating to people in a way that is psychologically unsafe for them and you don't even know it. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking now about places where you experience this frozen middle. Obviously there's some workplaces where that's not going on because mm -hmm. the top leaders are aware of this situation. And there are places like Netflix where, where that is true. Mm -hmm. So what would have to happen is that 
uh, starting even, okay, so I've worked with executive committee levels at in very huge corporations. There's mm -hmm. no psychological safety there. Yeah. None. So, so you have, uh, and then you have the board overlooking the CEO, right? And there's no psychological safety there. So it takes a very unusual person to break that. Yeah, break that cycle. But that that's basically what what would need to happen. And and we have seen examples of that. Um, the CEO of Alcoa, who's always being you know talked about in terms of how he came in and said, no, we're going to put safety above you know the shareholder price. And lo and behold, O'Neill. Uh, and lo and behold, the price of the shares went up mm -hmm. because it does work. But if you don't believe and this comes down to your fundamental beliefs about human nature and how the world works. So you see the depth of the change that would have to take place in order for that phenomenon to. Yeah, to be realized. Um, yeah. To change. Excellent. And lucky is the employee that works in a company where that is recognized. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Rosa. That's a fascinating insight to that. So Rosa, what advice would you give to someone starting out in health and safety as a career today? So one of the things that I was taught when I was being trained as a teacher is that the teacher's expectations would influence or determine how well the students learned. And this was based on several uh, experiments that had been conducted both with teachers and also in the labs where uh, teachers were told these students are super intelligent and these students are average. And at the end of the day, the students who had been labeled as super intelligent did much better on their exam than the, than the students who had been labeled average. And yet none of them were actually one or the other. They were actually just average people, uh, students that had been picked at random. This is a very sobering piece of data for parents, teachers, and managers. Because our expectations, how we see the person's potential mm -hmm. uh, influences how we behave towards them. Because later on when the experiment was reproduced in the labs, it was done with mice. Uh, and the same thing happened. The mice that had been labeled super intelligent finished all the mazes before the mice who had been labeled stupid. And when they did the debrief, the difference was that the lab people had touched the, my, the smart mice. They had petted them. They had talked to them. Mm -hmm. They had behaved completely different towards those mm -hmm. mice than they did towards the ones they thought were stupid. Uh, and I'm gonna be honest, I do. I, I When somebody thinks, uh, when I think that somebody is really nice, if I already have that in my head, I tend to be much friendlier and, and outgoing towards them than if someone has told me, oh, you know, that person is really difficult to get to know or standoffish. So that is, uh, that's, a big lesson uh, and I teach that to the safety professionals. Yeah. 
Sometimes I like to flip that though, and if they're quite standoffish, I go out of my way to be extra nice to them to try and bring them on board and win them over. So yeah, yeah that, that's interesting. Well, on behalf of the Saver Than Your Average listeners and viewers, Rosa, thank you very much for coming on the show. Rosa has an excellent book called The Relationship Factor in Safety, and she's going to hold it up here for us. It was actually Neil Fisher that was on the show a few weeks ago that um, told us a bit about the book and said it's the best book that I've ever read, read um, relating to safety you need to go out there and get it. And I said, well, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to ask Rosa to come on the podcast. So thank you very much. You're welcome, Blair. And you know, when you said that to me before we started recording, you made me feel very psychologically safe. So I, I will attribute any uh, success I have on this interview to that. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rosa. All right. Thank you. Great meeting you too. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide.